With Halloween just around the corner, my family has plenty of tricks and treats planned. But thanks to Pampers, one thing I have never been afraid of is a leaky diaper. Fear no leaks with new and improved Pampers Swaddlers, now featuring a blowout barrier at the back waist that helps prevent up to 100% of leaks, even blowouts. We've always looked forward to getting the girls dressed up for Halloween when they were babies. And with Pampers, we knew that in addition to being absolutely adorable in their costumes, they would be dry, clean, and comfortable. With Swaddlers, you can rest assured that you have superior leak protection while keeping baby skin healthy. Pampers Breathe Free Liner wicks away wetness, allowing baby skin to breathe, while the lockaway channels help keep baby skin dry and healthy. Pampers Swaddlers are dermatologists approved by the Skin Health Alliance, hypoallergenic, and free of parabens and latex. Pampers Swaddlers are available in sizes newborn to size 8 and now feature designs with the newest animal characters, Shiloh the Elephant and Freddy the Duck. For trusted protection, trust Pampers, the number one pediatrician-recommended brand. Download the Pampers Club app today and earn Pampers cash. Redeem your Pampers cash for exclusive Pampers coupon savings and rewards. A little update on our March 27th live recording of Latina to Latina. You did it. You sold out our early bird tickets. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. There is still time to grab your regular tickets while they last. Again, the details. We are partnering with our friends at Poderistas to bring you a conversation with New York Times bestselling author Sochil Gonzalez. It is happening at the William Vale in Brooklyn on March 27th. You can find the link to purchase tickets on our Instagram page at Latina to Latina or online at Alicia Menendez XO. I cannot wait to see you. Director and producer Loira Limbal knows the power of showing rather than telling. Her newest verite film, Through the Night, follows three working moms whose lives all intersect at a 24-hour daycare center. It is a compelling portrait of the care economy and the love and strength that is demanded of working moms. Loira, thank you so much for doing this. It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. I watched the doc. I loved it. I cried. I think this entire pandemic has just brought into focus what what moms are up against, what caretakers are up against, the amount that we rely on our caretakers in order to build our own careers. So I don't know that this documentary could have come at a better time. Thank you, first of all, for the kind words. Um, it means a lot. Uh, it does. It really does. You know, you have to think, I, I haven't seen the film with audiences. We were supposed to premiere at Tribeca last April and Tribeca was canceled. So I have yet to see the film with an audience. So every time someone shares, you know, their thoughts about the film, it, it, I'm like holding on to that feedback for dear life because it's all I have to go on. And yeah, in terms of the timing, it's just sort of ironic and serendipitous, all the things combined because we started working on the film in 2016. So it really was long before COVID. We were wanting to highlight the importance of the people in the film, their lives, their labor, because it was already overlooked and undervalued. And then with the pandemic, it's just really laid all of it out there for everyone to see. Take me back to the moment when you said, 
okay, this 24-hour daycare center, this has to be the nexus of my next documentary. So I, I learned about these tots, uh, the daycare in the film, through uh, an article that I read. Um, I'm a mother myself. Uh, I have two children, and I'm part of several mothers' groups online and, and things like that. <laughs> and someone shared an article that was looking at the fact that people in the U.S. increasingly have to work more than one job to make ends meet, that many times those jobs require overnight hours or irregular hours, and then posing the question of, given that reality, who looks after people's children? There was a lot of statistics, and then there was a bit about the daycare providers and some of the parents who rely on them for care. And as I was reading the, their stories, it immediately brought me back to my childhood in a very visceral way because my mother was also a caregiver. She worked as a home health aide and she worked the night shift. Uh, she worked from 8 p.m. to 8 a.m. and raised four kids in New York City on minimum wage. I'm the oldest, so, you know, at a really young age, I became her right hand. And I think a lot of her struggles I was hyper aware of from very young and marked me in a lot of different ways. And so in reading these folk stories, there was this kind of feeling of recognizing and seeing your own story or a bit of your story in the lives of people that you haven't even met uh, and that, that creates a real sense of connection. And subsequently, I thought about the fact that I'm now 42. So things really have not changed. And, you know, this is like a 30 plus year difference from when my mother was raising me to today. And sitting with that and, you know, just being angered by that. And, and then as a filmmaker, really feeling like part of the reason that things don't change is because you sort of can't change what you can't see and what you can't name. And these stories are very invisible in our mainstream. And there's a, a way in which I think Feminist spaces often miss the experiences of low-income and working-class women of color. And then the labor movement and labor conversations miss the experiences of that very same population. And we fall in this gap. We fall through these cracks, you know. So that's what I, I sort of became obsessed with, with telling the story and, and sharing First with the community itself to have a depiction, a portrait of itself, but also with the world beyond. When my babies were going through their exploration stage, I had so much to worry about. Falling over, bumping heads, what did she just put in her mouth? The list was endless. But when they were in pamper swaddlers, I knew I never had to worry about a leaky diaper. Swaddlers are great for both baby and mommy. They keep your baby's skin healthy and dry with Pampers Breathe-Free Liner, which wicks away wetness, allowing your baby's skin to breathe. Swaddlers have always given me peace of mind knowing that diaper rash and leaky diapers were not in our future. There's also the blowout barrier at the back waist to help prevent up to 100% of leaks, even blowouts. Pampers Swaddlers are dermatologist approved by the Skin Health Alliance, hypoallergenic and free of parabens and latex. Your baby deserves that. And they're available in a wide range of sizes from newborn to size eight and now feature designs with the newest animal characters, Shiloh the Elephant and Freddy the Duck. Having a diaper you can depend on is important. And it's why I have always loved Pampers, the number one pediatrician recommended brand. Download the Pampers Club app today to start earning rewards with every diapers and wipes purchase. Not to mention, get great parenting content with Pampers Club. 
Hey, Red, what are you up to? Just making sure all the M&M's gifts are wrapped and the balls filled. Remember that one holiday party when we had no M&M's? Oh, boy, I still have nightmares. The cookies? Yeah, you used all the M&M's candies that were meant to decorate the party treats to decorate snowmen. You did it again, didn't you? <laughs> they do look cute, though. Bringing cheer, M&M's for all fun kind. Hi, Latina to Latina listeners. It's Brenda from Tamarindo Podcast. And if you love Latina to Latina, then we know that you're going to love Tamarindo Podcast. And if you're in the L.A. area and can't make it to the Latina to Latina live event, we'd like to invite you to our event on March 28th at 6.30 p.m. We're hosting Amigas Blossoming, a night of celebrating and cultivating blossoming friendships. This will be in Highland Park, and all the details to RSVP for free are at tamarindopodcast.com forward slash events. I love any project that begins with an obsession. Through the Night follows the lives of three moms. Their lives intersect at this daycare. So you had to engage several people about being a part of the film in order to make it work. What did that look like? And how do you convince someone that they want to be a part of something like this? So part of my ethos as a filmmaker is that I don't ever want to convince anyone. I approach people and share what my vision is and share what is driving that vision and what my intentions are, highest hopes, some of the fears, and then, you know, make the proposal. Do you want to join it? And part of what was beautiful about working on this film was that in many ways it really felt like a, a true collaboration because... Nunu, who is in many ways the heart of the film, was very clear, you know, around why she wanted to participate in this. Marisol, who is one of the mothers in the film, also was clear, and, and Shinona as well. So they were active and enthusiastic participants, which is the kind of projects that I like to work on. I, I don't like to feel like I am cajoling or convincing folks to share their stories with me uh, because it's so delicate. You're asking people to open the doors to their homes, their lives, their children. It's something I don't take lightly. How do you earn that trust? Part of my process is spending time with folks before bringing cameras into a space and also sharing about myself in personal sort of terms as well. You know, I, I think about, you're asking, as a filmmaker, as a documentary filmmaker, you're often asking people to share uh, intimate details of their lives with you. And, and I think there is a power dynamic, you know, obviously for you as a filmmaker coming in with a camera, uh, and particularly when you're working with communities that are, underrepresented or misrepresented. And part of the way that I like to at least address, you know, that power dynamic is sharing back some of the intimate details of my life, which in this case had a lot to do with why I was obsessed to begin with. There's my mother's story, but there's also my own experience of being a single working mother of two children and grappling with a lot of things. And, and I think there was a, a part of me that really needed to bear witness to the experiences of other mothers who I see as, you know, myself, as my community, as my sisters, 
to bear witness to their experience to sort of make sense of my own. It's the first moment in the film when I cried, which was watching just a mom and her kids go down the stairs and one kid trips and they're in a rush and they have to sit there and cuddle the kid. But the other kid wants to be cuddled, you know, and it's like it is such a universal experience of being a mom who's just totally exhausted, has nothing left to give. At that exact moment, there's a mini crisis and everyone needs you to be at 110%. My heart just broke for her because I was like, I have so many more resources at my disposal and I still know that deep, deep core exhaustion of having nothing left to give and having to find it. Absolutely. And I think this is part of, on a kind of deeper level, some of what I was interested in, in, in making visible. You know, one of my questions that I, I've had about my mother, but I have it about a lot of women and mothers in my life is precisely what you're saying. Like, how do you give when you're running on empty? You know, where, where do you draw from? Where do we draw from? In some way, somehow, we continue to give and nurture, right? With flaws and no one is perfect, obviously, but some way, somehow, so many mothers are still able to pour out even when there's nothing being poured in. And that was part of the question because I think there is a way in which our conversation about motherhood and mothering in the United States, it's very reduced and very sanitized. Obviously, that's changing over time. But, you know, there's so much about this experience. It's, you know, perhaps one of the most complex, sacred, universal, all the things, right? All the big adjectives that you could think of, parts of the human experience. But because of sexism and patriarchy and all of the things, it's been reduced and sanitized and kind of dismissed. And then we're all left individually to grapple and struggle with whatever we're confronted with. And we feel like we have to do that on our own, in private, quietly, because to say anything is to be open to judgment and criticism and then all the shame and all the guilt that comes along with, with that. And so there was a part of me, too, that wanted to surface that for someone like Shinona, who is a nurse who works the night shift in the pediatric ER and is a single mother, there's a part in the film where she says, I feel guilty. You know, I'm exhausted. I don't know what rest is. I don't know when that happens or when people get it. And I feel guilty because even though I'm with my children during the daytime, I really can't give them as much of myself as I would like to. And these things, I think, are important to surface and make visible because there's so many mothers in that same position who are walking around with all of that guilt and that guilt turning into shame when in reality they're doing the best that they can. And they're not struggling because of some sort of personal shortcoming or personal failure. They're struggling because it's hard, because our system is inhumane and very cruel. And there is not support for working families, not for mothers, and certainly not for single mothers, you know? I'll ask you a few more questions about filmmaking itself. 
I had a conversation with Christina Constantini, who's also a documentarian. She did the doc about Walter Mercado. And you know, she talked about how verite is hard because you are around and some days you get something amazing and some days people are just living their lives and nothing is quite popping. And in her case, of course, she was with Walter Mercado. So he kept like mugging for the camera and performing for her. But I think that happens even a little bit with people who aren't performers, right? That when there is a camera around, there is a desire to perform how do you make yourself as unobtrusive as possible? How do you make sure that you are not with your presence changing the dynamic of what is happening in the room? I think part of the way to be unobtrusive in my case was keeping our crew small. And so it was typically myself and one camera person, sometimes a sound person, and that was it. Uh, and we would try to distribute ourselves throughout the space as best we could. But also understanding that there's always a natural period of people adjusting to the camera. And in a space like the daycare, because there is this really critical thing happening, which is caregiving, the kind of the attention and the interruption that the cameras and the equipment cause does dissipate because people eventually have to get back to what they're doing. My understanding is it took four years to make the film. I think it's hard if you haven't done this to wrap your mind how four years goes into 90 minutes worth of product. So can you walk me through what was happening over the course of those years? One huge thing I would say for documentary films, part of what takes so long is fundraising. It's not necessarily that you're producing and editing and actually making the things the whole time. A lot of the, the time gets spent applying for grants or applying for things or pitching, waiting to hear back, getting rejections, you know, doing it again. And so that's a huge part of the process for documentaries. Uh, if, if it's a, a truly independent sort of passion project, if it's not commissioned by an entity that's coming in with the full budget. So that's one part of it, uh, which is probably at least half of the time is that. And then the other half of the time when you're making a verite film is that for me, it's important to meet protagonists at whatever point I meet them, and then follow them over time to allow for the natural change um, and growth that happens in everyone's lives. And also for me to get kind of perspective on the story that I'm telling. So you come in with your original premise and the themes that excite you, then you you know have to confront the reality, like Christina said, of what is actually happening in people's lives. And then you have to sort of adjust. You, sometimes you have to let things sit and marinate. Then you have to pivot. For us, because time was perhaps the scarcest resource in everyone's lives, both the protagonist and my own. So in our case, we shot about 21 or 22 days over the course of four years. And because time was uh, such a kind of scarce resource in everyone's lives, both the protagonist and my own, because I was making the film while I was working my full-time job, my, my kind of nine-to-five, and raising my kids. You know, I sometimes joke that I, I made this film on my third shift, and, and that's 
I named my company Third Shift Media. We were sort of really deliberate on when we would shoot. Uh, you know, so we shot on days like the first day of school, for example, because as a parent, I know that there's chaos always <laughs> on the first day of school. Holidays, you know, because for obvious reasons, if you're a parent who is working throughout the holidays, there's obviously things that come up, you know, that are that work that would speak to the the main themes that I wanted to to address. So there was that piece of being very deliberate about when we shot. And then there was the edit, which we sort of started, we would stop, we would start again. All in all, that's that's how you end up with a four-year process. You studied history at Brown. You're a graduate of the Third World Newsreel Film and Video Production Training Program. But how did you really become a filmmaker? I became a filmmaker over time. I worked on one film. I co-directed a film called Estilo Hip Hop in the early... We started working on it in the early 2000s and finished around 2008. And I started working on that film with no real training or, you know, any experience. And my co-director didn't have experience either. It was a, a story that we found ourselves immersed in uh, and that once again really spoke to us in this way that was uh, undeniable and we couldn't kind of ignore it. You know, there are these ideas and these things that you, you try to talk yourself out of doing and, and they won't leave you alone. And that was the case with Estilo Hip Hop you know, very passionate about culture and music and hip hop. And I was living in Brazil. My co-director was from Chile. And the hip hop movements in Latin America and the Caribbean were so strong and vibrant that we felt like this was a story that we absolutely had to tell. I jumped into it. And in the process of making that film, I realized I really enjoyed documentary filmmaking. And so when I finished... I needed a job. I needed some stability. I needed some health insurance. I had some health issues. So there was an opening at my job, which is my full-time job now, which is Firelight Media. There was an opening for an office manager. And I was like, this is perfect because I'll have a regular paycheck. I'll have, you know, health insurance. And I'll be learning and working alongside, you know, some of the um, most amazing and prolific documentary filmmakers of color in, in the United States. Uh, and so, you know, it was like kind of the process of jumping into something that I was passionate about and then realizing, like, I really love this thing and this is the space that I want to stay in. This is an industry, like, honestly, most of the industries that we talk about that is just so opaque. So I read all of these distinctions you have, like a Sundance Institute Warner Fellow and a Ford Foundation Just Films Rockwood Fellow. What do those things actually mean in your journey? Some of them are come along with grants, right? So they're like recognition that you're an important filmmaker or your voice you know, matters and they want to support you via money. Uh, other times it's been fellowships that provide the recognition. And when I say recognition, it's like for the field and the rest of the industry to take note. And it's almost like providing you with a stamp of approval or some validity, like you matter and you're a filmmaker that other people should take note of 
which obviously is really problematic because they're gatekeepers and they're deciding whose stories and whose voices matter. But, you know, in, in my journey, it, it has meant that, you know, and kind of every one thing that you get does end up opening other doors or coming along with other opportunities. The fellowships have also meant a space of community and a space of creative rigor, which really has been invaluable. For example, with Through the Night, we went through, we were selected for the Sundance Documentary Edit Lab. And that's an experience that's really rigorous. It was really meaningful. You know, my, my editor, Malika Zuhali Warao, and I were able to spend nine days together on, you know, the Sundance Resort uh, in, in the mountains uh, with all of these amazing, super prolific and experienced editors looking at all of our projects and workshopping things with us and giving us masterclass. You know, those, those kinds of experiences are really uh, invaluable in many ways. To say nothing of having nine days away from your children to focus on anything. Absolutely. Malika is also a mother. Uh, and if, you know, for us, it was like we were working 10 hour days, but we felt like we were on vacation. <laughs> you know, it's like, because we could wake up by ourselves, go to the bathroom by yourself, like shower, all the things that are luxurious. <laughs> I haven't gone to the bathroom by myself in four years. That in and of itself sounds like a vacation. <laughs> so, you know, a lot of this stuff is very chicken and egg, like we can debate whether you need the training and institutional support to fund and create these projects. But so often that support is predicated on your having made or produced something. So how do you work around that? Do you have to put your own capital in at the beginning? It's a real issue because there isn't a lot of monies or opportunities out there to support the process of developing a project, right? Like doing research and development. And so for through the night, what I did was I negotiated a bartering reduced rate situation um, with the DP that I worked with at the beginning and with the editor. And these are people that I knew uh, whose work, and I knew I wanted to work with them on the project long-term. And I, you know, I sort of said like, let's, if we could do this at this rate, you know, then I will use what we create here and use it to raise money, to raise the R&D money, right? To actually raise the research and development money. But I had to do the research and development before I had the, to, to even be able to get the, the R&D grants, which is another huge problem because it means that you need to be able to do that. You said something profound, you put something away that I had not thought about, which is that over the past few years, we have seen so many images of children at the border being separated from their parents, being treated inhumanely. We've seen so much over-policing of Black and Latino youth that it was important to you to show children of color being cared for and loved by people of color. That punches right through in the film. I did wonder as you were producing this, if you ever caught yourself producing for the white gaze and how you then 
caught yourself and corrected? I did not uh, find myself thinking about the white gaze. I had names and faces of people that I was making the film for. And, you know, they literally were like people that I know in real life uh, from different parts of my life. And they were, and, you know, I was thinking about Nunu watching it and Shinona watching it and Mari watching it and their kids watching the film and my mother watching the film and my best friend who is also a nurse watching the film. So that's who I made the film for. You know, really, like, I literally had names and faces that I was thinking about. Um, and that's part of the reason that I say I was trying to create a cinematic love letter, you know, to women of color. And, and you know, that's not to say that everything is kind of rosy or romanticized. You know, obviously people are struggling uh, and, and up against quite a, a lot of, of difficulties and challenges. But I did want to create something that would allow uh, these women, these people that I had in mind, that would allow them to see themselves the way that I see them. And I see them as like just you know amazing and radical and visionary, and you know to do the work that they do to be who they are in, in the world that we live in. To me, is nothing short of visionary and radical and subversive. I'm so excited for the world to see this film. Laura, congratulations. It is exquisite, and I can't wait to see what you do next. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. And thank you for having me. I've enjoyed this so much. Thank you for joining us. Latina to Latina is executive produced and owned by Juleka Lentifo Williams and me, Alicia Menendez. Paulina Velasco is our senior producer. Our lead producer is Cedric Wilson. Kojin Tashiro is our associate sound designer. Manuela Bedoya is our social media editor and ad ops lead. We love hearing from you when you email us at hola at latinatolatina.com, when you slide into our DMs on Instagram, when you tweet at us at Latina to Latina. Remember to subscribe, follow us on Radio Public, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, wherever you're listening. And please, I know I ask this all the time, but do leave a review. It is one of the fastest, easiest ways to help us grow. A little update on our March 27th live recording of Latina to Latina. You did it. You sold out our early bird tickets. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. There is still time to grab your regular tickets while they last. Again, the details. We are partnering with our friends at Poderistas to bring you a conversation with New York Times bestselling author, Sochil Gonzalez. It is happening at the William Vale in Brooklyn on March 27th. You can find the link to purchase tickets on our Instagram page at Latina to Latina or online at Alicia Menendez XO. I cannot wait to see you.